Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Alistair Crozier, the Executive Director of the Council. This podcast is a recording of an event our Council co-hosted with the North Asia Centre of Asia Pacific Excellence to launch our new research report on science and research partnerships between New Zealand and China, released in July 2023. The report is called Collaborative Horizons. I want to thank the North Asia Cape for also contributing sponsorship support for the report, alongside one of our Council members, the University of Waikato. So why did we commission this report? Well, as many will be aware, New Zealand's relationship with China is increasingly portrayed as a binary balancing act for our country between trade on the one hand and security and geopolitical issues on the other. These factors are important, but it's a very black and white narrative that glosses over the reality that there are also multiple other areas of engagement and collaboration which form part of the bilateral relationship. Often these collaborations are so established and unproblematic that they escape widespread attention. But we need to view the New Zealand-China relationship as the totality of contact in many areas. In the area of research, many of our bilateral success stories are not well known. If anything, there's perhaps some caution that we need to be very careful in any research we undertake with China. Well, we do, but not just with China. We need to be mindful of potential risks to our national interests with any of our international science and research partners. And there are frameworks in place to manage that. But our research relationships don't need to be defined by the difficulties. We also need to acknowledge the many positive examples of science and other research collaboration between New Zealand and China, and the potential for new areas of achievement in future as China continues to develop as one of the world's leading countries for science and research. I also want to note that while we perhaps think of science and tech as the main areas where New Zealand can collaborate on research with China, our report highlights other areas such as the preservation of languages and tourism sector development as well. So it's not all white coats and test tubes. Our report is available on our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz. Right, without further ado, we're going to hear from three very informed panelists to learn more about the report findings and discuss what they mean for New Zealand. So it's my pleasure to introduce them now. Firstly, Peter Gruxer wrote the report. He is a communications and research consultant based in Wellington, working for Sputnik. He has more than a decade of experience working with public and private sector organizations and has also served in public policy roles. Peter will present the main findings shortly, but I also want to acknowledge the contribution that science journalist Peter Griffin also made to the report. Also, um, Dr. Lee Day, hi Lee, is the sector manager for Food, Fiber and International at AgResearch, and she leads its strategic partnerships with international commercial partners in agri-food sciences and technologies. Lee has developed long-term partnerships for AgResearch with several leading Chinese dairy companies and top research institutes, which I'm sure she will discuss more today. And Associate Professor Jeff Smale joins us from the Auckland Cancer Society Research Centre, an internationally recognised academic drug development laboratory based at the University of Auckland, where he has led research projects since 1994. Jeff is also an associate investigator of the Morris Wilkins Centre for Molecular Biodiscovery, one of our national centres of research excellence. For over 10 years, Jeff has been collaborating with investigators in China based at the Guangzhou Institutes of Biomedicine and Health and Jinan University. So welcome to you all. It's now my great pleasure to invite Peter to give a presentation on the main information and conclusions contained in his report. Over to you, Peter. Kia ora, Alistair, and thank you very much for that. So with this report, we wanted to answer several questions. The first really is what kind of science and research are we doing in partnership with China? So that's the scope of collaboration. We've got these priority areas that our governments have agreed to work on. So what's actually happening in those and what's happening outside of those? Next question we wanted to answer was how much science and research are we doing in partnership with China? So that's the scale of collaboration. You know, and are we doing more or less relatively than Australia or the US or another comparable country. We also wanted to understand why New Zealanders are partnering with China in science and research. So what are the motivations? We wanted to understand the benefits and challenges and then also get a handle on some of the future prospects. 
The first question I'll try to answer is how much science and research are we doing in partnership with China? So one way to look at this is, yeah, in terms of the all New Zealand scientific publications, what's the share that have Chinese co-authors? So this is called a bibliometric approach. Australia is our number one collaborator country, um, co-authors more papers with us than any other country. That's not a surprise. There are very extensive academic links with Australia. Number two, the US. Three, the UK. China is at number four. Now that's a ranking increase. China was number six in 2016, so it's jumped up. But what I want to point out is the rate of growth. So between 2017 and 22, there's a, a relative 51% increase in the number of co-authored papers. So we're now at 11.6%. If we are to speculate on that trajectory, we could imagine a point where it would keep becoming more and more important. But this means that China is actually our fastest growing international partner in producing scientific publications, which is quite interesting. 11.6%, what does that actually mean? So we're right there in the middle. 11.6% of our publications have Chinese co-authors. Well, Australia does more with China. They're above 16%. Um, we're about on par with the UK, fractionally lower, but we're doing more relatively than the US or Germany is with China. So that just gives you a sense of you know, the, the intensity of our engagement with China there. Uh, well, the scope of science is really, really broad, and it's continually expanding. I was very, very surprised in putting this report together, just, uh, you know, how much is out there. We have these three focus areas that our governments have agreed to. Food science, environmental sciences, health and biomedical sciences. There's no surprise that they take up the lion's share of what's going on in terms of collaboration. But there's a lot of growth in collaboration outside those fields, and that is increasing all the time. And it's no surprise there's so much going on. We've got bilateral agreements going back to 1987 with China in um, science and technology. Since 2010, we've had the strategic funding agreements in place to fund projects in those three key areas. We've also had these national level collaboration centers, which have done a whole lot of foundational relationship building, which has been really, really valuable. So moving on. Out of these three priority areas, food sciences is without a doubt the largest. One of our CRIs, culture-focused plant and food research, they've got collaboration in 11 different Chinese provinces in terms of their science and research. They've got commercial activities in three provinces. You know, they're working on new crops, better crops, more resilient crops, tastier crops. They're working on crop protection, that's uh, pest control. There's a lot of, or at least before COVID, there were hundreds of people that plant and food research were bringing up and taking down between New Zealand and China. So that just gives you a sense there. In the dairy space, which I'm sure Lee can, Dr. Lee can, can speak to, um, ag research has built up massive scientific expertise over the last few decades, and they're partnering with China uh, commercially and academically. Another area in food is packaging. You wouldn't expect it, but packaging is highly technical. It takes a lot of research to get a handle on the changing regulations and the innovation required in food packaging. So anyway, food science is really, it's, it takes the lion's share in terms of what we're doing with China. Environmental sciences, well, there is a fair deal of complementarity and shared goals between agriculture um, and farming systems between New Zealand and China. And that's in terms of we want we want to be productive, we want to be sustainable. And so that's led to a whole lot of work being done. And this image is of Lincoln University, which hosts the New Zealand China Water Research Center. So some of the collaborations we've seen down there have been in, uh, for example, mitigating nitrate leaching into waterways, um, looking at minimizing greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture by identifying the different molecules involved in those processes. And you know, that's all research with really measurable environmental impacts for New Zealand and China. Um, what else in the environmental space? Well, this picture here is on board a uh, Chinese vessel. This, these are members of NIWA, uh, the National Institute for Water and Atmospheric Research with uh, Chinese partners from the Deep Sea Institute. In terms of uh, helping us understand our own backyard, they helped us to go into the Kermadec Trench and get samples from the bottom, uh, you know, it was like something like 12, 7,000 meters. Without the infrastructure, uh, we would be putting down box cores and taking many, many hours to get samples. So it's really been a good fast forward for us in that sense. 
Auckland University also doing a lot more in uh, marine re uh, science collaboration with China too. Health, the third area, several areas we're partnering with China. One is the um, non-communicable diseases area. So these are the big public health issues facing both countries, such as, you know, your heart and brain disease, cancer, diabetes. So down in Otago, a whole lot of work being done, uh, done down there. The Non-Communicable Disease China Research Collaboration Center has done a lot of stuff with Huntington's disease, um, artificial intelligence and Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia. Another area is population health. So Waitamata DHB, now part of Tefatu Ora. Uh, large Chinese population in Auckland, they've been going up to China for a, a long time, having delegations down and learning how traditional Chinese medicine can be used in our health system here. They now have a lot of innovative projects. We're developing a special halter for ECG patients based on our IP and Chinese manufacturing capability. So really, really interesting stuff. And now they're looking at how Chinese medicine might help assist with rongoa Māori or Māori health to get integrated more into New Zealand's health system going forward. Uh, and then, of course, drug discovery. Drug discovery has been a real success story. I'm sure Jeff can speak more to that. This is Maligan here, this particular um, image here. That's CAR T cell therapy, which is being done with, with partners in China. And that's got something like a 50% complete response rate. So it's a 50% curative rate against some B cell lymphomas. So really, really exciting stuff being done there. Outside these areas, there is just tourism, architecture and planning, social sciences, renewable energy, uh, education and learning, conservation, even the fine arts. There's a lot of spillover from those priority areas, and that momentum has come from inside universities, um, but also from the tripartite fund. So that's uh, Education New Zealand, which has been funding um, a lot of these projects outside those areas, and it's really broadened the, uh, I guess, the range of projects that can attract funding, and that's been really helpful. I think without that tripartite fund, it would have been much harder to find examples for this report outside those priority areas. So that's been really, really good. Okay, benefits. So I spoke to about 20 plus uh, researchers for this report. I asked them, you know, what's the, the big benefit of partnering with China? And it turns out it was the same reason that people chose to partner with China. The big one was really being able to access China's extensive and very good science infrastructure, technology and facilities being able to leverage its, you know, human resources, a lot of foot soldiers there, which can help push projects forward. For some commercial, commercially focused CRIs, it's income, it's accessing Chinese funding, you know, providing consultancy services. Another big one is, you know, it lets us access China's unique environment. I'll give you two examples of that. Pest control, the brown marmorated stink bug. It's only a matter of time before this pest comes to New Zealand, but we've been working in China, in the field, with partners there on a small sort of parasitoid or par parasite that, while harmless to us, will help to control that pest when it comes here. So being able to go into China, seeing how that pest behaves is really important. Um, another one, an interesting one, is earthquake forecasting. So we have models in New Zealand. We've, we forecast earthquakes. We have done since the 90s. But our models only get better when we test them against real-world environments. So GNS Science is now working to get access to China's environment so we can then run our models there. China's a vast territory. It's very seismically active. So that'll obviously have some good benefits there. So that's just some of the benefits. What about challenges and barriers? Yes, of course there are. Um, we asked people about culture and language. That was effectively never identified as a barrier. English is the universal language of science. Uh, researchers in New Zealand and China are all reading the same journals and publications. There were some differences in research styles that were identified, just, just anecdotally. Uh, you know, Chinese researchers can be more rigid in their reporting requirements, you know, can be less um, willing to accept unexpected results, perhaps have less of that problem-solving mindset that New Zealanders are known for. Um, but that wasn't really a game changer either. The biggest barrier was funding on our side, on New Zealand's side. And that's no surprise. We're a small country. Co-funding is difficult. Projects, are, that's the model um, of funding between New Zealand and China. It's co-funding. And, you know, if I'm in New Zealand having to apply for my funding, my Chinese partners apply for their funding, 
getting all that to match up can be quite difficult and that's a real barrier. COVID, of course, next. Anything involving field work was completely frozen for two years, only getting started now, only in the last few months that people are getting started again. And of course, risk. Everyone I spoke to was aware of risk because, as you mentioned, um, Alistair, um, all international collaboration has potential risk. And that's why we have you know, guidance in place. So what about future prospects? Well, um, the message was loud and clear. China wants to do more. Um, China has a large appetite for collaboration that remains strong. China wants to do more in terms of visits, uh, wants to do more in terms of projects and exchanges, and also broaden the areas of collaboration. People I spoke to said there was plenty more to do in pest control, plenty more to do in drug discovery, and more than a few pointed to climate change, because this is a shared problem we both face going forward. So, for example, water supply, water quality was one area where we can partner more closely. Climate change and water are very much related. So water conservation, not wasting it, using it better, using it better in agriculture. China was pointed out to me that China's got 5,000 years of experience in agriculture. So when we talk about what is regenerative agriculture, we often look to North America, but we could look to China as well. So th these could be some of the most important things for you know, our future environment and our future economy. China wants to engage with us in them, and those are big areas where we can collaborate moving forward. So there you go. That's a, a good overview of the report. Great. Well, thank you so much, Peter. And that was a perfect intro into today's discussion. I just wanted to follow up on one thing. I know that, that science research collaboration did come up during the Prime Minister's trip to China in late June, uh, just last week. What was the outcome of that? What was discussed there? Yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty much, uh, so the science minister came to New Zealand, we saw him with um, Dr. Aisha, Minister Virrell. Basically, it's been a renewal of the agreement, so we're going to keep going. There have been some tweaks and fine-tuning to the way things are funded, but the Strategic Research Alliance, which is the, the key mechanism by which we fund projects together, um, it continues and it goes on. We did have four priority areas, and one of them was advanced technology. But to be honest, there's just not a lot and there has not been a lot going on in that space. So we did see that priority area drop off the roadmap and we saw the three other areas, food, environment and health continue. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's full steam ahead, Alistair. Great. Thank you, Peter. Um, and look, I mean, that's been a great taster for the report. I do encourage everyone to get beyond the executive summary if you're having a look, because the very readable case studies all the way through um, tell these fantastic stories um, about what's been achieved in some of the areas that Peter's mentioned. But um, for now, I'm going to bring in Lee and, and Jeff to join the discussion, um, our true science experts. And I thought I'd start with you, Lee, and just ask you to describe the nature of the work that you've been leading for AgriSearch with Chinese partners, what's been involved, and what have been the main achievements so far. Thank you, Alistair, and thank you for inviting me to come onto this panel. AgriSearch has collaborated with several research institutes, universities, and also commercial companies in China. We primarily work with uh, two top agriculture institutes, the China Ac Academy of Sciences and China Academy of Agriculture Sciences, and including a number of their sort of institutes. The purposes of uh, these collaborations is really for mutual benefits, as uh, a lot has been outlined by, by Peter there already. For us, the key benefits really are to be able to access the funding, I think often we don't talk about that, and it is actually quite important to be able to support growth of our research R&D, be able to access funding is important. The second one, Peter also alluded as well, is the access the state of art facilities. China government has invested a lot into their new R&D facilities, and certainly they have been equipped with probably the most modern uh, equipment that you can find in any countries. Certainly, we a lot of those we really don't have or not available. The third one, as what you mentioned earlier on as well, Alistair, it is about China's unique agriculture environment, which is very different to ours. And for example, the differences in, in, in the pests, again, it was talked about it. Uh, we also collaborated with them in the soil and the water qualities. We started a number of those projects there. 
And we also work with them together in the animal ruminant physiology. Again, because of different, different farming systems, we actually do have a quite different animal ruminant uh, physiologies. Meat quality and packaging, and also some of the uh, really trying to come together, tackling some of the uh, food safety issues as well. So, uh, um, I mean, yeah, publication often is the number one. But apart from joint publications, I certainly see that the collaborations has also broadened the scope of our science thinking and some of the new applications as well. Otherwise, um, our scientists just will not be able to gain the experience, experience with within the New Zealand. But thank you for that. I'm going to play devil's advocate now. You and I have worked quite a lot together, Lee, including up in China. So you know the spirit in which I'm asking this. But when the council was up in May, it was very clear that local dairy companies, for example, were quickly catching up to international competitors. And as you know, some of the big ones are here in New Zealand. Some people might look at the work you're doing with Chinese dairy companies and say that, that you're giving a leg up to local competitors. I know you don't see it that way. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I certainly would say it is something we debate, debated a lot right at the beginning, say probably 2015, 2016, when we started with more dialogues with uh, dairy industries in China. What I'd like to say, probably quite a lot actually, the very first one is we are not the only collaborators that Chinese researchers and dairy industry engage with. And we are by no means the largest one. Hmm. Many large European universities and even commercial companies have very active presence in China. So I would actually say we compete with the Europeans to demonstrate the quality and the value of New Zealand science and in turn, our dairy products into the Chinese market. Now, having said all of that, as I mentioned earlier as well, and we do have a, a risk assessment process in place to make sure that we proactively managing any potential sensitivities that may arise, and we have not really seen any. So for example, majority of our work are actually around providing scientific evidence to support New Zealand products now, they are under Chinese branding to gain the Chinese market. You know very well, a number of Chinese dairy companies do have a close relationship with New Zealand dairy industries. So in some cases, we actually directly support our New Zealand dairy industries by attracting R&D investment, which I mentioned earlier on, actually from their parent or their shareholding companies into New Zealand to support growth of the New Zealand um, dairy industry. I would also say by building and maintaining active collaboration partnerships, it also provides us as, as researchers some couple of uh, key benefits. One of them is we are in a much better position to gain the latest market information and consumer preferences. We can use those knowledges and information to support New Zealand food companies. This is outside of dairy, you know, overall New Zealand companies who, who's interested to export into China. And one of those examples is the work we have done in our fermented food program, where we were able to identify key taste and texture attributes and that are distinct, very distinctly preferred by Chinese consumers, which are not normally you would find in New Zealand, yeah. you know, in supermarket shelf, basically. And we then use those information to help develop new microbes to deliver those taste attributes in New Zealand produced dairy products. So that's really just bring benefits into New Zealand. Uh, as Peter mentioned before as well, and plant foods, uh, plant and food research also has an, an, a very extensive collaboration in China, and they also have been very um, active in understanding the consumer preference and bring those trades back into their breeding program. The second is, I just think having those active relationships, I believe we actually draw their attention and interest into New Zealand products and thereby in indirectly, certainly we support our export into China. Yeah, you've convinced me. Thank, thank you very much for <laughs> um, such a comprehensive response. Well, yeah, great to hear more about what you've got going on. Jeff, we'd better bring you in because I know you work in a very, very important area, but quite a different area, um, including collaboration with China. So what's been the focus of your collaboration with Chinese partners over the last decade or so? Thanks, Alistair. Kia ora to everybody. 
So we've been working in cancer drug discovery projects with our Chinese colleagues. This started in about 2012 when, when a group of scientists, about 15 scientists from the Morris Wilkins Center traveled to China to visit various institutes, both in Shanghai and in Guangzhou. We found the group in Guangzhou was kind of a, a good natural fit for us in terms of the type of work they were doing. This is the Guangzhou Institutes of Biomedicine and Health, a Chinese Academy of Sciences Institute based in Guangzhou. They had a pretty good fit with the type of science we were doing, the sort of molecules we were making on and, and had made in other projects. In some ways, you would say we were probably competitors in very similar approaches. So we really sort of started to collaborate on a project uh, together. And from my point of view, the main driving force of that at the time really was to generate a critical mass of, in, in terms of the team. You know, drug discovery is a very multidisciplinary process. You need all of the different expertise that's required to discover drugs. And that can be done at home, but it's an expensive process and it's difficult to uh, build a team and sustain that funding uh, solely in New Zealand. So really, that was the biggest part of the puzzle. There are other benefits as well. I guess infrastructure was certainly part of it. Our Chinese colleagues were running assays uh, that, that we weren't routinely running. So that um, avoided, you know, that saved us from having to build those assays ourselves and get them up and running independently. And so it pretty quickly became a, a really productive collaboration. It's been very successful from my point of view. So in, in terms of drug discovery, that involved a particular family of growth factor receptors that sit on the surface of cancer cells and drive the growth of cancer cells. Um, we had a particular target family that we were interested in trying to develop drugs for. We knew a lot of large pharma were in this space and we knew it was very competitive and, and we really didn't have a lot of time to, to, uh, to take to get to a lead candidate because the patent literature was really starting to go off at that time. Uh, a lot of new patents coming out in that space. And so it really involved the synthesis and testing of something like 150 molecules. So they were made, the synthesis was done at both sites. The compounds were exchanged between the two countries. The biological testing was done at both sites. Uh, different assays, you know, at different sides for different purposes. Ultimately, we selected a lead candidate that we thought was a, a pretty promising drug, has strong activity in, in models of cancer. And that compound, we patent protected that. So the intention was to generate joint intellectual property through the collaboration from the get-go. We did that. We patented the molecule and, and a lot of its close uh, friends. And then ultimately we licensed that patent to a company based in Guangzhou who are now looking to take that compound into human clinical trial in China in the first instance. Well, congratulations on, on everything you've achieved. You mentioned quite a few of the benefits for New Zealand and your institute in partnering with China, but I know, you know, it's not all plain sailing. What were some of the challenges that you've had to overcome as your partnership has developed? I don't think there, are any real, there weren't any real challenges that aren't typical to any international collaboration. I mean, you've got to sit on planes, and although flying to China was probably better than some other places because the planes tend to fly overnight, so you hit the ground running the next day and, and get straight on with the work, which is good if you can get some sleep on the plane. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, we, we didn't find communication, any of that sort of stuff was an issue. Their, their systems are very similar. That you know, A lot of them were trained even in the American system. A lot of them have been to university in the US or even worked in pharma companies in the US and had repatriated back to China uh, over the years. So we, we were really sort of speaking very much the same language in, in terms of processes. I guess one thing I'm conscious of, we didn't realize when we started, was that PhD students in China, when they when they're working on their thesis, are required to submit a publication uh, as part of their thesis work. And so they can't actually graduate with their PhD without a publication in press. And so that can be challenging. You've got to, we don't have that challenge here, although we try to make sure our PhD students do get papers as part of their thesis, of course. But um, if you're working on intellectual property, that creates a little bit of a conundrum because you've got to, file the patents and then submit the papers in that order or you've got problems and so that needs some stage managing you need to be conscious of that and and really work on a phd thesis to try and generate a paper and have a view to the patents and the timelines of those patents so often in new zealand we might do something where we would have a student do something that's not going to 
generate intellectual property and cause that problem uh, as part of their thesis work. And so we can do both because you don't always want to file the patents and the timing that's going to be suitable for a student's uh, project. Thank you. Um, well, we've got you, and and this may be for Jeff or, or potentially for Peter. One of our audience members has asked about what the Maligan Institute is doing as well, which um, I understand is in a similar medical research area, but I'm really not sure myself. Are you able to speak to that, Jeff? Well, I certainly am. I guess the work that Maligan's doing, I think, is, one is very impressive. It really sort of grew out of the work that we did with the GIBH. So we were one of the first groups to start working with the GIBH in China, but as, as our collaboration matured and became really productive, we were able to take other groups of scientists to come and visit the scientists at the GIBH. And amongst those was Professor Ian Hermans, who started a collaboration with Professor Peng Lee at the GIBH in this CAR T-cell space. And uh, Dr. Rob Weinkoff is the clinician here that works in that space and is running the clinical trial. So the type of science we're talking about is you take cancer patients that have lymphomas, uh, you draw some blood from them, you take out their T cells, which are immune cells that are in theory able to attack the cancer. In the lab, you then engineer those T cells genetically so that they can better recognize the cancer cells. And then I know that the Maligan are putting a couple of other things into those T cells to make them more aggressive towards cancer cells. Uh, you then grow those T cells up in the lab and expand them. So you've got lots of them and put them back into the same patient. And then those cells will continue actually to amplify in the patient, but they'll then go and attack the uh, the lymphoma and uh, and kill the cancer cells specifically. Again, just amazing to have these snapshots of what the two countries are doing together. So having New Zealanders now to get in, being able to get on a clinical trial to access that type of approach is a game changer for New Zealand um, cancer treatment. Um, typically, if you had to go overseas to try and access a CAR T cell treatment, it might cost you something up towards a million dollars per patient. So this is a great opportunity for New Zealand science. Thanks, Jeff. I'm going to go back to Peter with a question we've received specifically for you, but others may want to chip in as well uh, in your areas. The question is, hi, Peter, when discussing challenges to New Zealand-China scientific collaboration, you mentioned that all international collaboration has potential risk. What do you mean by this? And what kind of risks do you think are possible? Okay, well, I will defer to, to my scientific friends. Uh, science, uh, I think the key thing is you're developing IP across borders, you're sharing data across borders, and you're developing technology across borders. There's inherently going to be some kind of risk there that your IP can be co-opted or adapted or used in a way that you had not intended it to. Uh, So-called dual-use uh, technology has been an issue that's been raised uh, here in the past. Really, the risk is just that you are operating in different jurisdictions across borders and you're sharing uh, IP data and technology together. And there is the potential, always the potential, that that can be adapted or co-opted in a way that you never really intended it to do. But yeah, I'm, I'd be very interested to hear what the other two have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely correct. And, and any collaboration, in fact, can involve that. Typically, in my game with drug discovery, you really prefer not to collaborate outside your own institution because anytime you start generating multi-institutional IP, it can be problematic. Even at the point when you're looking to partner a compound with, the, with industry or venture capital, they like the story to be as clean as possible. So they really prefer the IP to be a single institution type IP. And so that can uh, influence your ability to uh, gain investment and further develop the compounds. So you always consider collaboration pretty carefully. You certainly have to trust your partners. Uh, and you only really collaborate outside of your institution and your own tech transfer people if you need to pick up something you can't really get from an in-house uh, source. Thank you. Another question from me for Lee. This will be my last one because we've got some great questions in the uh, Q&A. But Lee, um, uh, Peter's report goes into the big structural changes in the Chinese science system this year with, with the establishment of a new Communist Party commission and, and the Ministry of Science and Technology functions changing somewhat. For those uh, in the room today that are maybe already collaborating with China, you were up in China recently. Were, were people talking about that? And will that have any impact on your area of work, for example, good or bad? 
I would say yes, certainly. Yeah, and I was in China a month ago also, certainly felt the subtle differences in the environment after, you know, without being into in China for almost the four years. But by large, I think it's positive. I certainly see it as positive as well and feel that way as well. I think we, uh, I'm here, I'm talking about New Zealand, was probably slightly late to introduce the likes of a student visas and things. And we are a little bit late trying to start some of those, sort of ramping up some of those collaborations. But on the other hand, I heard a lot of interest, even including some direct signals from the government, from Chinese government, to encourage universities and uh, researchers to consider New Zealand as a place for their studies and training. So I think that is very, very positive. The other side, I certainly have seen it as well because of close border and everything. They started a lot more collaboration between them themselves within China, i.e. between the Chinese, Chinese universities and the universities and commercial companies with universities as well. And again, I actually see that as a positive because having much more broad group coming together and talk through in terms of what they can do, what we can do, and potentially we can access as Peter mentioned there as well, we do the same. We can access a certain facilities or certain work that they do. Clinical study is one of the good examples that potentially would be a lot more expensive here and potentially can be a lot easier to do this. So I actually think as we move forward, it should be a lot more positive, certainly for New Zealand. And I mean, this is very clearly from what Peter mentioned earlier as well, the evidence of recent visits by the Chinese Minister of Science and Technology and also uh, the signing of the renewed five-year roadmap science and technology agreement. My understanding is within that agreement, New Zealand actually doubled the funding. I know it is still relatively small compared with other countries, but it is an, 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 it's a positive direction. Oh, that's good to hear. I'm going to keep on going with the questions so that we don't run out of time. Coming back to you again, Peter, for this one, I think, firstly. The question is around uh, something you mentioned briefly, which I was going to raise with you as well, the concept of Chinese experience in integrating TCM into Western medicine, and I guess the prospects to do the same with um, rongoa Maori, Maori medical tradition into Western medicine. Did the research show whether Aotearoa has any particular competitive advantage in this area? Uh, that is a fantastic question. The answer is that it's really early days. Um, the research will not show whether we have a competitive advantage yet. The research is really at the moment trying to look at tr uh, traditional Chinese medicine, wrong on Māori, understand what the similarities and the differences are. So, you know, traditional Māori medicine has been integrated within Western systems for the last 70 years. It's, it's gone on that journey. It's a long journey. It's been a lot of lessons learned. But, you know, you or I may receive, when we're getting care, elements of, of, of Chinese medicine because it, it has had that integration. So we're at this point, we have this new Māori health authority. Um, and what they're focusing on is the sustainability of Rongoa Māori, which is Māori healing practices. And, you know, there are similarities with Chinese medicine in terms of the, the holistic way they treat patients. So, you know, um, I guess the opportunity now is to understand what worked well with the integration of Chinese medicine and the modernization of that and how that can be applied to Rongoa Māori and how that could um, basically have better health outcomes for all New Zealanders. Going forward, competitive advantage, who knows, but it's definitely very, very early days. While we're on the subject of Maori engagement in, in this whole area, you raised another very interesting case study in, in the report about, I think it was around um, drawing on New Zealand experiences with promoting learning and preservation of Maori language yeah. uh, and applying that to some so-called dying languages or ethnic languages in China. Do you want to just talk about that one very quickly as well? Sure. So Massey University has partnered with Beijing Jiaotong and Guizhou University on this particular project. So United Nations, uh, they tell us that one every week, one language dies somewhere in the world. And so what Massey has done is that it is looking at this minority language in Southwest China. It's called the Miao. We would call them the Hmong, probably outside China. But they've developed a survey to uh, quantify how many native speakers are left about 5%, so it's very, very small. So what research has done here in Massey is they said, actually, you know, we've got the experience in New Zealand of 
you know, bringing te reo through legislation into becoming an official language of, you know, developing immersion language schools, of encouraging Māori-led tourism, of building Māori media. And we've seen how those have strengthened and um, helped te reo become, I mean, we, we're using it more every day. All these things help. So what the experiences that we've had are, are, are all evidence points that these massive researchers can use and can marshal to then recommend to the province in China or, or whatever um, area it is to help to, uh, to grow and protect and revitalize this minority language because it's pretty sad when you hear that one a week is dying. Sure. Yeah, well, again, really, really good to go beyond uh, laboratories and some of the work that you've been uncovering to look at some other forms of research collaboration as well. Um, I'm going to take another question from the Q&A. For everyone, really, just your impressions, I guess. Um, Peter talked about the, the focus areas that, that um, New Zealand and China have agreed between governments. And the question or the suggestion is that, that these are too narrow and they're more exclusive than inclusive. And in particular, for example, advanced technologies, uh, it was up there and now it's gone again and we haven't seen much. I guess, what do you all think about this idea that um, New Zealand and China could go broader with the official areas that we've agreed to focus on? Um, I can go first, I guess. I don't have a problem with it. I, th I think um, the three areas that have been identified in some ways are where there was critical mass already and that there's a little bit chicken in the egg with that. It's a self-fulfilling sort of a thing. but. And it's not limiting. I guess that's where the funding is pointed more specifically at those three areas in terms of co-funding. But I don't think that that necessarily means you can't collaborate in other areas. And if you generate some productivity, it's harder to imagine how you might fund that. But if you can pull that off and generate some productivity, those areas may get added going forward. Yeah, I agree with Jeff. And those are the three areas identified by the official government funding systems, which is not huge amount, I think, related to the last question there as well, in terms of New Zealand science funding systems to formally facilitate a uh, collaboration or, you know, collaboration research side, which isn't great, which isn't great amount. So uh, if you have more areas, you diluted all, all of that. Anyway, those are the three areas already had a fair amount of activities and, and established the partnerships there. It does not stop anybody to trying to form collaboration in their own areas. China is a vast, big country. There are many, many universities there and many of the research organizations there as, as well. And the key, I mean, there are some areas, as I mentioned earlier on, in even in agri-research, and Alastair, you mentioned there, was regarding agriculture and the climate change and the greenhouse gas emission side of things, which is currently not in our official collaboration funding systems, but certainly it's an area we have already started working in, in those space. Certainly, you know, it, it does not stop scientists to form scientist links and start working, uh, building the relationships. That's, that's great. I, 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 all I would add is that, you know, these priority areas have changed in the past and they may well change again. But I agree that it is about saying, you know, we have finite resources and we are going to focus those where the impact is greatest. You know, I would have loved to have been privy to those conversations between MB and most when they, you know, have these discussions. Advanced technology, there are things happening. You know, Auckland University, there is stuff with wireless charging, uh, which is really, really impressive. And there are sparks there, which, which are good. Uh, so perhaps in the future, but right now it seems to be, you know, health, food and environment sciences, that, that's where we're putting our chips. Um, look, thanks, everyone. While we're on advanced technologies, I guess one of the broader contexts for New Zealand-China science collaboration is the general environment now where you have a more complex and contentious global environment, um, obviously some tensions between the US and China in some areas. Jeff, in the medical area, for example, is that going to impact on what New Zealand does with China in any way? Or is it more a case that cancer doesn't know national boundaries and your work will continue just the same as it always has? And does China collaborate with the US in this area? I guess that's the other part of the question. Certainly they have done historically. I can recall one of my first trips to China had a talk from a very good American scientist who had joint labs both at Scripps and at um, the Shanghai Institute of Materia Medica. And he gave a very good talk um, 
a lot of that was driven by the work that he'd been doing in China. From my point of view, will it make a big difference? I don't think so, really. I mean, I'm not a politician, so I, geopolitics is not really my forte. I, I spend my time with my head down making molecules. I don't really see that changing. We're, we're very much at the working with people up there, Professor Kerr Ding, Professor Zhao Yuan Lu. At the individual level, it's, in, it's a collaboration between individual scientists. At, at best, the highest up the food chain we get is really the independent the, the institutes that um, that they work with and that we're ultimately going to sign agreements with, I don't think very much higher up the food chain than that. Well, look, um, we've still got a few minutes left and there are still a few more questions. So I might run through them briefly. The, well, an elephant in the room, I guess, has, has come up in the Q&A and that's funding. And the question is, are the benefits of our collaboration limited by New Zealand's science funding system? And if so, how can we change that? Leo, Jeff, do you have any thoughts on um, Yeah, um, on as I mentioned before, I mean, I think this is really, we're just talking about the formal endorsement between Chinese Ministry of Science and Technology and uh, RMB funding that is limited, not a big pool of funding. On the other hand, there is, along the side, uh, my understanding is the uh, scientists and to scientists exchange program, which is where we can send uh, cohort of scientists have spent four to six weeks in China. Conversely, uh, you know, reversely, they do the same thing as well. Often, this side, we often actually don't fill the quota. So there are opportunities there for initially to building the relationships, utilizing those kind of uh, fundings. I think it's it, there are a lot different type of fundings around. And uh, I think, Peter, in your report was regarding the access of students through China, um, Science Council's funding as well. It's about knowing what different type of mechanisms all around be able to tap in rather than just focus on this relatively narrow government to government side of the funding scheme. Yeah, from my point of view, I certainly, I think it's limiting for sure from the New Zealand side. We don't have a lot of money funding New Zealand science. Funding in New Zealand hasn't really kept up with the cost of inflation for the last 30 years that I've been doing the job. So it's difficult, and then there certainly is obviously a lot more money in China against the Chinese side. So I certainly feel like we, we are all often the partner that has to worry more about whether we can deliver on our side because we have the funding to be able to pull that off or not. So it's certainly something that's that we consider and we think about. Sure, thanks, Jeff. Peter, another question. Um, you mentioned climate change collaboration around water conservation, for example. Given that both countries have experienced increasing flooding events, have you found any collaboration on adaptation technologies to respond to these increasing events? Um, not, not an area of collaboration, but I know that there's a lot of interest here in, in sponge cities. Um, look, there's work going on around the potential Im impacts of climate change to um, biological control systems, which are the pests we bring in to manage other pests. Uh, but in, in terms of adaptation technologies more broadly, uh, I have not come across any. There may, there may well be some projects underway, but I'm, I'm not aware of them. Yeah, I thought I'd mention sponge cities as well, because when I worked in Western China, we had a, a company, New Zealand company, Boffa Miskal, was advising some um, Chinese cities on sponge city approaches, uh, which I found really interesting back in the day. So again, it's a good example that it's, that it's not only... CRIs and research institutes that are doing this collaboration. Our, our companies also get involved on a commercial level as well. We've got time for one more question, and it's a, it's a good one to wrap up, actually. I guess for everyone, are there other areas in your line of work or that you've seen elsewhere that you think offer untapped opportunities for New Zealand-China science and research collaboration? Where could we go next in your fields or generally? Um, from my perspective, it's probably very obvious, it's very much around uh, climate change and also uh, reduction of impact of agriculture to the climate. And uh, we do a lot of work in that space. I know China start, start gaining a fair amount of attention into that space as well. And uh, yeah, no, we just need to start building the bridge and building the dialogues and conversation and start getting into that area whereas their, both of their dairy and meat industry are animal-based industry growth. And, uh, and certainly the, some of the tech science and technologies can be used to reduce the impact of those, those systems to climate. So the other thing I think it will be really useful and hasn't really tapped in 
much yet as well from my perspective is actually uh, alternative proteins. Plant proteins, mm -hmm. alternative proteins. I often laugh at it. Often some people <laughs> ask me about plant proteins, you know, how we can uh, shift uh, our momentum or thinking towards uh, eating more plant proteins from health benefit. I'm going to say, well, Asian people have been <laughs> uh, consumed those proteins or those products from long, 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 long time ago. Uh, potentially there's a lot we can learn from there and helping us to grow our alternative protein sectors. Yeah, from my point of view, I, I think the CAR-T trial gives you a, a bit of a look at it. That's a trial that was going on in China and now has a trial site, if you like, in New Zealand. There's a lot of other pharma companies and what have you in China developing compounds into clinical trial. If we could get more connectivity that we're such that we're even participating in the clinical trials in New Zealand, we would be able to offer New Zealand cancer patients an early opportunity to get onto some uh, medicines they can't get otherwise. It's well known we're a little behind the pace in terms of pharma funding for uh, cancer drugs that, you know, we, we can't get access to here. And so one, one way to achieve that is to be in a clinical trial program that has those types of drugs on test. Um, so that's something. And, and certainly the compound we have on trial in China that's about to start soon, we'd like to bring a clinical trial site for that compound here as, at some stage if we could. Thanks. Peter, any last thoughts? Um, should give you the, the last word, I think, as the author. No, thank you. But I mean, that that's them. Pest control, drug discovery, sustainable agriculture, and facing that huge shared challenge of climate change. I think that really is the future of uh, science and research uh, partnerships and collaboration between New Zealand and China. Thank you to Peter Grapser, Dr. Lee Day, and Associate Professor Jeff Smale for participating in today's discussion. We hope you found it an interesting and useful window into New Zealand-China science and research collaboration. A big thanks again to the North Asia CAPE for co-hosting the discussion with us and to the CAPE and the University of Waikato for sponsoring our research report, Collaborative Horizons. A reminder that to access our report, please visit our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz. And for more podcasts, please visit our website or follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or Spotify. Thanks for listening.